Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, do thank you for being a good and gracious God, and we give you praise for your righteousness, for your mercy, your compassion. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us your word so that we may know about your great and glorious promises. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to think well upon the text here this morning and enable the text to enable us to persevere until the last day where you break through the clouds and you come for us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to reason well through the different doctrines and all the descriptions found about your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, welcome everybody here again to Gospel of Grace Fellowship, our Sunday school. We're going to be going again through the book of Revelation. And I want you to all see that we are continuing on in verses 9 through 20. Now, remember last week we left off with three items. We talked about the address, the doxology, and the theme of the book of Revelation. So remember, the address was to us as Christians. The fact that you and I are unique because of what Jesus Christ has done. The doxology, remember we said that's a word of praise or glory. And that goes to God who is unique. He's the one who is uniquely empowered to save. Or power, he has the power to save. He is the omnipotent Holy One of Israel. And then we also saw the theme of the book of Revelation, which is about the coming kingdom. Well, this week we're going to be looking at this opening chapter, which, or the opening part of this chapter, which is the commission. I mean, the, the last part of the chapter before we get into chapter 2. Now, the commission here to John is to write his revelation, to write his vision. And here's one thing I want to talk about with you with chapter 1. Chapter 1, John heaps up descriptions of who Christ is that are rooted in the Old Testament. And so it seems fairly overwhelming That's on purpose because John wants us to understand that Jesus is the one who is unique, who has the authority to bring the kingdom. He is the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. And so in this first chapter, you might be overwhelmed with all of the descriptions that are heaped up about Christ, but just realize that ends here because we're going to be getting into chapter 2 next time. So with that, we're going to be beginning with looking at John's exile And that's in verse 9 here. Listen to what John writes. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now notice John here, he calls himself a brother and fellow partaker, and he's a partaker in what? Well, the tribulation, the kingdom... And the perseverance. Now, what's interesting about that phrase that I have highlighted red, it is governed by one definite article. Now, what that means then is that this entire phrase should be seen as being linked together. In other words, it's not tribulation and a kingdom and perseverance, but all those concepts are linked together in what is being used here as what's called a hendiatrist. Now, what in the world is a hendiatrist? Well, hen is the Greek term for one. Dia or dia is a preposition meaning through. And tres is three. So you have one idea through three words. Okay, so all three words are linked together because of this common definite article. So in other words, what it has to do with is a tribulation because you and I are in the kingdom of God and therefore it requires perseverance. And so the evidence that this tribulation is only for Christians is seen in the very next phrase where it says, which are in Jesus. Okay, so remember in the New Testament, you have this concept of camps or spheres. So think of it this way. Routinely in the New Testament, you're either in the camp of Satan, the world, or you are in the camp of Christ. Think about how many times you see the phrase in Christ in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, you see it all over the place. So you're either in one camp or the other. And if you are in Christ's camp, you are eternally secure by his gracious power. But because you are with him, you are going to undergo tribulation. You're a partaker in the kingdom, and it requires perseverance. Okay, now this perseverance is a theme all the way through the book of Revelation. We'll talk about 
that in just a moment. But I want you to see here is this concept of the two different ages that the New Testament writers had in their minds. And the reason I'm going to show you this is it helps us understand what kind of tribulation is it that John is referring to. Is he referring to the seven years of tribulation or the great tribulation, the last three and a half years? Or is he referring to the general period that you and I are living in now? And I think it's the latter. Now, here's why. The New Testament writers had a schematic. Remember I showed you this on one of our sermons? They saw two different ages. The old age, which people are still living in now, but this old age would be ended when the Messiah would come and reign. But let me point to the diagram here. Notice that this old age continues on even after the inauguration of the Messianic kingdom. So think of this beginning of the Messianic kingdom as Jesus' first coming. Okay, so yes, Jesus comes at his first advent, but that doesn't necessarily get rid of the old age. Okay, the old age is still with us, right? There's still sin in this world. Well, you continue on then until you have the consummation of the Messianic age. That's at Christ's second advent. And that puts to death then the old age as he brings in the millennial kingdom. What we have to realize is between those two points then, you have something called philipsis. Okay, that's tribulation. That's the tribulation that happens to every single person in Christ, not because we're trying to earn salvation, but because we're with him. Okay, the term philipsis there is the term for tribulation. Now, what I want you to see then is tribulation is used really in two different ways. It's used for this general tribulation that all believers go through because you're going to be persecuted for your faith. That is what's being referred to here by John. So, What we have then is this whole period between Christ's first and second advent is a time period of tribulation. But what happens is when you get the last seven years prior to the kingdom coming, you have the philipsis, the tribulation reverses, where it's no longer on the people of God, now it's on the people of the earth, the people of the camp of Satan. Let me give you a passage that shows that. um, Nancy, you had... 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 8. Everyone turn your... And we'll wait till... Um, we got to get the microphone to you. And we also have everyone turn your... 1 Thessalonians. 2 uh, Thessalonians. Yep. Everyone turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 8. 2 Thessalonians... Thessalonians 4 through 8. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, those who afflict you. Okay, stop right there. Notice he says it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The term affliction there is thalipsis. It's the same term as we have here for tribulation. So notice now, Paul is speaking of this reversal, is he not? He's saying you were afflicted under their tribulation, but a time is coming where God is going to reverse it and he's going to afflict them. When does that happen? It happens at the end of the old age, the seven years, Daniel's 70th week. Okay? That's the reversal that I'm referring to. Now keep reading because we'll hear what that philipsis looks like for the unregenerate. Verse 7, And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing with retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Yeah, so those are the ones who are unregenerate and they're going to be the ones who are afflicted at the end. So that's a great reversal. Now, here's what I want you to come away with on this slide then. We have to distinguish between two different types of tribulation. One is common in this age that happens to believers because you are with Christ, you are in his camp. But the other one is relegated only to unbelievers, and it's at the end of this age in Daniel's 70th week. And so let me show you a couple passages that I think show the distinction. Turn your Bibles to Acts 14.22. Acts 14.22. Remember, this is where Paul had been abused. He had been beaten but yet he returns to strengthen the disciples. 
Acts 14.22 that says about the Apostle Paul that he was strengthening, it says, the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, there's Thalipsis, we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay? So again, that's the time period he's referring to that I have on the screen. So again, that Thalipsis that you and I go through is because we're with Christ, but remember... It's not an attempt to earn anything. It's because you're with the one who has earned you once for all salvation. All right? Now, let's see the distinction. That's the philipsis or the tribulation of this age that believers go through. But now let's look at the specific trial that comes upon the whole world in the last seven years that's only for the unbeliever. Revelation 3.10. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 3.10. Now, remember this promise is to the church... Of Philadelphia, but we know that all of the promises to any of the churches apply to all Christians because of the phrase that's repeated seven times in the address to the churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. So here's Revelation 3.10. Jesus gives this promise. He says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, notice the need to persevere, and what enables you to persevere? The word. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, in the book of Revelation, that last phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is an expression that is reserved only for the unbeliever. Okay, it's used exclusively for unbelievers. So, that trial, that period of trial, the hour, is the seven years of Daniel as we see if we unpack the rest of Scripture. So that's the tribulation or the trial that comes upon only the unregenerate. So do you see the distinction between the two? One is for us, that's the broad period of time for tribulation for those who belong to Christ. The other is just the seven years for the unbeliever. Okay? Now let's talk a little bit about perseverance. Notice perseverance is in this list. Why? Because those who truly belong to Jesus Christ by faith will persevere. Not because we're some spiritual superstars, but because it's the grace of God enables us to do so. Remember, Jesus says in John 10, 27 through 28, My sheep hear my voice. I give to them eternal life, and they shall what? Never perish. Remember when he says they shall never perish? There, Jesus is negating a subjunctive mood. So in other words, what he's saying is, it's not just saying that you won't perish. What he's saying is there's not even a possibility of your future perishing. It's one thing to say that something won't happen. It's another thing to say there's not even a possibility of it happening. And that's what he's saying there in John 10, 27 through 28. Okay? But perseverance has its place in our lives because of trials and tribulations. Turn your Bibles one more time. We're going to be all over the scriptures today. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Last week, we looked at Romans 5, 1 through 2, where we saw because of Christ, we have two things going for us. We have peace with God, or no longer under his wrath. And we saw that we're also those who are introduced to God's unmerited favor, which is his grace. Okay? Now, as we go to verses 3 through 4 of Romans 5, Paul continues. He says, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. There's Thalipsis knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Now, remember in the book of Romans, hope is synonymous with faith. It's a faith that's oriented to the future promises of God. So the tribulations we go through then, again, aren't designed to enable us to earn something by going through them. But what they are is evidence that we have genuine faith. And so they build perseverance, and the perseverance does what, according to Paul? It gives us hope. It shows that our faith is, in fact, genuine. So even these things, the philipsis that you and I go through, it's for our benefit. It's for our good. And God is going to demonstrate that we really do belong to Christ as we persevere through them. So again, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance all go hand in hand. We're all part of the kingdom... Therefore, we need to persevere through the tribulations. That's how I think we should see it. Now, notice where is John then because of this tribulation? Well, he's been exiled to Patmos. Now, here's the island of Patmos. 
It's just southwest of Asia Minor. And there's really two huge volcanic mountains in the north and then in the south. And then it's connected by this little isthmus. I always have a hard time saying isthmus. I never know if I say it right. I just say it real quickly. Hopefully nobody will notice. (laughs) But uh, he's on this island. Now, here's the possibility. He is exiled, that is John, the apostle, during the reign of Domitian. Okay, now there's three possibilities. Number one, he was deported because he's a Christian. And by the way, what did the Romans think that Christians were? They thought that we were atheists because we wouldn't submit to their pantheon of the gods. Okay, so they didn't even understand a lot of them what Christianity was. But the first type of the banishment would have been simply John being banished from his homeland in Asia Minor. Okay, and and what would happen then is after a period of time, he'd be allowed home. So it'd be temporary. The other type of punishment could have been a permanent banishment where he lost his rights to be a Roman citizen. The third possibility is that he was banished there under the threat of capital punishment. Now, which of those three is true? We're not exactly sure. It was one of those three. All right. But here's what we do know. Let me give you a couple sources. Eusebius, he's the great church historian. He writes this in his history of ecclesiology, history of the church. He says that after the quote, after the death of Domitian, the Roman Senate allowed John to return to Ephesus, unquote. Okay, so what that means then is it gives us corroboration that, again, Revelation was written during what period of time? Domitian's reign. Okay, so Domitian dies around 96 AD. Now, what does that eliminate? It eliminates the neuronic dating of Revelation, does it not? Remember those who hold to preterism that everything's fulfilled in 70 AD? They maintain that Revelation was written during the time of Nero in the 60s AD. Well, that's not true again according to Eusebius. Now, here's another historian. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, one more quote from Eusebius. Eusebius says, Nerva, who was the successor to Domitian, recalled the exiles in 96 AD. Now, another historian, Victorinus of Patau. Victorinus was from Slovenia in the 300s. Listen to what he says. By the way, he relied on the works of Origen. He wrote in Latin, Origen was in Greek. He said this, quote, John was on the island of Patmos, condemned to the mines by Caesar Domitian, where he saw the apocalypse, which he published after being released upon the death of the emperor. Okay? So, again, why did Domitian, or I should say, what did Domitian do to him? Well, he exiled him. Was it permanent? Was it under capital punishment, we don't know. But we know when Domitian dies, Nerva, the next, the next Roman emperor, allows him to return. One thing I want you to think about relating to our interpretation of Revelation, think about how awful it would have been for John, who had a robust ministry, who had probably uh, brothers and sisters, perhaps even family, to be banished on this island, to be working in the mines. Notice he's surrounded by the sea. Remember, to the Jewish mind, the sea represents what? It represents the abyss. This is where Satan and the nations rise up, right? They were not a sea-going people. The sea was despised by them. But I want you to think about how particularly despised the sea would have been to John as he's exiled and separated by those whom he loved because of the sea. And I think that may contribute to why he says this with such passion, probably. Revelation 21.1 John says, this is about the new heavens and the new earth. He says, then I saw the new heavens and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And he says, and there is no longer any sea. Almost out of the blue. Think about how powerful that would have been for him to see a kingdom one day with no sea. Now, you and I as Americans, we like the sea. We like volleyball and luau's and everything associated. Yeah, yeah, condos and fishing. We love all that. The Jews, not so much. Okay, especially John who's exiled. Okay, so that's Patmos. Now, let's get back to Jesus then commissioning John. Verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, what's interesting is John's claiming to be in the Spirit, and what we have to wrestle with is what does he mean by being in the Spirit? I'm naturally... Um, inclined to want to see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit. So what you and I have to wrestle with, though, is what does John mean by the phrase? Does John imply the Holy Spirit, capital S, 
Or is he referring to the fact that John is in his spirit, in other words, not in his body, like a trance-like state? Well, believe it or not, the evidence, I think, supports the latter. Now, let me explain why. One of the reasons we know that is we always want to first begin when we're trying to interpret a passage, look at how the author uses the same phraseology. What's interesting is through the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit nine times is referred to and always with the definite article. This construction here is what's called a narthris, meaning it does not have the definite article. Now, is that definitive in and of itself? No, but it certainly points us in the direction that the Holy Spirit is not being referred to. But I think what proves that the Holy Spirit is not being referred to here is how this phrase is used elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Again, the anarthrous use of spirit, meaning it doesn't have the definite article, even though we see it in English. Revelation 17.3, listen to what he says. John says, he, And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Okay, now he says the same thing basically again, just slightly different context. Revelation 21.10, John says, And in the Spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, here's where we want to be careful. Remember, the book of Revelation builds heavily off of the Old Testament. And we know from Ezekiel chapter 3 that Ezekiel was a prophet who was transported by the Ruach, the Spirit of Yahweh. And that's the Holy Spirit. But what's interesting is we think, well, maybe that's what's being depicted here. The Holy Spirit is moving John just as he did the prophet Ezekiel. But the difference is, and I didn't even catch this the first time I read it, but notice it says, he carried me away. The he there is not the Holy Spirit, it is an angel. Okay, and then you see the same thing again in Revelation 21.10. He carried me away. So it's the angel that's carrying John away here in the spirit. So it's hard to conceive of how the angel would carry John in the Holy Spirit. It could be perhaps a dative of uh, instrumentality. It was by the Holy Spirit. But more than likely, what John is referring to here is that he was being moved, not bodily. He never left Patmos but in his immaterial portion. Remember, a human being is made of what? Material portion, body, and immaterial portion, soul or spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? The, the implication is by spirit. So John here is being transported then to see, I think, this vision in his immaterial portion of his body. Now, we have some references in the scriptures that seem to give more credence to this idea that he would be in a trance-like state in the spirit. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 10. Remember, this is Peter in Joppa. And Peter says this, Acts 10, 10. Well, the, the narrator, Luke, says this of Peter. It says, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Okay, so this trance-like state is where we get the term in our English term, uh, ecstasy. But the idea is, is that he is seeing something that the Lord has been showing him, but it's not bodily, it's in his spirit, as it were. That's more than likely the implication. Um, we see the same thing in Acts twenty-two seventeen. 17. Go uh, just 12 chapters later. Acts twenty two seventeen, Paul recalls the same thing. He says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem. This is Acts twenty two seventeen. He says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. Okay, so more than likely I think that's probably what's going on with the Apostle John. Now I had another cross reference, second Corinthians twelve, two through four. Who had that one? I did. Ah, Brian. I promise, no genealogy. Thank you, sir. Yeah. (laughs) Second Corinthians 12. Yeah. Two through four. Oh, here I am. I know a man 
in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Wow. And, of course, he's given the thorn in the flesh then so that he doesn't boast in that. Well, here's the issue. Think about Paul is saying, I don't know whether I was in the body or not. I just don't know. Okay, so he doesn't know whether he was transported bodily or was he just in the spirit. I think that's the implication. So the point is, I think that that's what's going on here with John. John is making it clear that he knows he wasn't in the body. He didn't physically, he wasn't physically removed from his location. It was in the spirit. Now, here's the question I want to ask you with. Do you and I have similar experiences? Or should you and I claim or desire similar experiences? And I think the obvious answer is no. Okay, why? Because John is an apostle. Now, do we have modern-day apostles or prophets today? No. Ephesians 2.20. The church was built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Okay, now how many buildings do you know that have multiple foundations? You don't have any. So there's one foundation that's been laid, and that foundation was what? Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and his apostles and prophets. Notice in Ephesians 2.20, it's not prophets and apostles. It's apostles and prophets. New Testament apostles, New Testament prophets. And that's why we have a faith once we're all handed down to the saints. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. You can just listen to this, jot it down. Ephesians 3, 3 through 5. He says, by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, the mystery was something formerly concealed, but now revealed through the apostles and prophets. He says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, there in the Spirit, I think, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would use it as a dative of instrumentality. It would be by the Spirit. Okay, so the point is you and I shouldn't be looking for these ecstatic experiences. Why? Because we have a once-for-all handed down to the saints kind of faith. The prophets and apostles, that foundation has already been laid. Okay? All right, so this is unique to John then. Yeah. Oops, I'm sorry. Oh, Eric, just real briefly. Yeah. I. This is one reason I love this church so much is that, oh, I get it all the time. I hear all the time, God told me this. God told yeah. me that. God told me this. I yeah. love this church because, no, God has spoken to us through his word that came down from us, from the, you know, the apostles, what you're talking about. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, both of you, for, for really giving us good ground to say, no, guys, let's define how we hear from God. I, thank you. Thank you, uh, Rich. Um, Bob, you had a... Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, Bob, you had a professor who said the most we can claim is a sanctified idea. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who was that? Uh, that was Ray LeVang. Ray LeVang, okay. He said we may have a sanctified idea, but it's still our idea. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So, yeah, let's say I claim that I have some... I, I feel that God is ushering me to do something. That's on me. That's my feeling or my desire. Whether or not it's from God, I can't determine. I am free to do things that are not forbidden in the scriptures, and I may fall flat on my face or I may succeed. That's all part of God's providence. But you and I are not to seek extra-biblical revelation. It's not reliable. We shouldn't seek it. What we're to know are the things within the scriptures. Yep. Okay. Now, one other thing I want to point out here is notice he was in the spirit then, and we're saying that's the immaterial portion of his person and it was on the lord's day now some claim that the lord's day is the day of the lord that john is being transported into daniel's 70th week which is synonymous with the day of the lord that's not a good reading it's the lord's day is the sunday it was the first day of the week for christians because they celebrated the resurrection of christ okay so it's a sunday and i also want you to notice the sound that he hears is a voice And notice we have a simile. I just want to point these things out so we learn to interpret Scripture. He says, it was like the sound of a trumpet. 
So that's a simile. Anytime you see like or as, you have a simile. So that's important because he didn't actually hear a trumpet, but it was a voice that was like a trumpet. It was so loud and had such power. Okay? All right, now let's keep moving on then. We see that John commissioned, he was commissioned to write his vision here. Revelation 1.11 says, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Notice this verb here, to see. It comes from blepo, but it's present active indicative. Now let me teach you a little bit of grammar again. Don't glaze over. In English, you and I talk about tense. That's what we focus on, whether something happened is happening, or is going to happen. Now, Greek has that element to it, certainly. It has tense. But it's what's called an aspectual language. And what aspect has to do with is whether the action is seen as finished. Think about a football game. If it's finished and complete, it's done. That would be tenses like the perfect tense. Okay? But it also can focus on ongoing action that's in process. That's what the present tense is used for. So the present tense certainly is telling you something is going on typically presently, especially in the indicative mood. But the major focus of the present tense is that it's an ongoing process. In other words, the implication here would be that it's not that John saw something or that he's going to see something, but that he is seeing it. And so why that's important is it shows you that John is being revealed this all the way through the entire book. This is a vision that he's been given as an apostle of what the last days, especially in chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22, will be about. Okay? Now, what's interesting, too, is we see this phrase to write all the way through the entire book of Revelation. He's commanded to do that. So John is being given a vision. Remember, it goes from God the Father to Christ. Christ to the angel. The angel... Oftentimes, the angels in the book of Revelation, from there to John the Apostle and from John the Apostle to us. Okay, that's often how it's transmitted to us. The other thing I want to point out is, notice on the map here, these are the seven churches. Notice Patmos, this little island that he's banished to. He is writing to these seven churches, and notice they were addressed in clockwise fashion, from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, why again? Did John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, why did he choose to write to these seven churches? Well, it's not because these seven churches, again, represent seven different successive stages of church development through history. But rather, these seven churches are representative of all of us. Now, how do we know that that's correct? Because, again, you're going to see in chapters 2 through 3 the repeated phrase, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Remember that term, hear. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the famous Shema. Shema is actually how it should be pronounced. That means to hear. And when God uses that term, he's not saying, well, just hear the sound. He's saying, hear in a salvific way. Hear with understanding. And so that's what's being commanded of all of us as these seven churches are being addressed. Why? Because the message given to them is given to us. Okay? That's going to be very important when we get to Revelation 3.10 especially. Why? Because the promise to the church of Philadelphia is that they would be spared this time of tribulation that comes upon the whole earth. And you will hear people argue, well, that's only for the church of Philadelphia. No. He who has an ear, let him... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. It's for all of us. Okay? So that's who he's addressing there. Now, let's see the source of the commission. Now, here's where John really starts piling up the descriptions of Christ from the Old Testament. Revelation 1, 12 through 15, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, 
when it was when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here in this description is that he sees seven golden lampstands, and we know this to refer to the churches. We'll see that in verse 20 when we get there. But here's the background to the lampstands. Remember back in Exodus 25, you have this lampstand that has seven branches to it, and it is placed between the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. So this lampstand would have been in the holy place. And the symbol was that that's where God's people were. God was present with his people. We see it in Zechariah chapter 4. It represents, again, God's people. And the idea of this lamp is the idea that we are to be light to the nations. We talked about that from Isaiah 42, 6 a few weeks ago, that Israel was to be a light to the nations. You and I are to be a light, Jesus says, as well. No one takes a light and hides it, but they put it on the shelf of the room so that it gives light to the entire room. So let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. That's all this imagery of the lampstands. But notice who's in the midst of the lampstands. It's the Son of Man. Now, who's the Son of Man? Well, that's Jesus. That's the Messiah. Great Messianic reference. Now, who had Daniel 7, 13 through 14? Oh, Norm, good. And then, Clodoris, you have the next uh, verse. Oh, your voice is shot. Oh. Oh, no, Norm's got him. Okay. This is Daniel seven thirteen through 14. So this is going to be the description of the Son of Man. So Jesus, remember, this is his favorite self-designation through the Gospels. And the reason he likes it is because it proves that he's the Messiah who has the right to rule. He is the king. Yeah. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming... And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He's given glory, dominion, and a kingdom. He is the king of kings, and that's the reference to the Son of Man. Now, here's what's so fascinating about it. He's depicted here as the king who has the right to rule, and so he's amongst his seven lampstands, the churches, this one who has the right to rule. But notice the description. He's also clothed in a robe. Now, the term robe comes from podoras. It's a term in Greek that's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting is almost every time it's used, at least over half of its occasions, and every time it's used in the book of Exodus, that term is used for the robes of the priest. Okay? So what's so beautiful is you have a description then of Christ who is the king, who has the right to have dominion, rule, and all authority from Daniel 7 but he's also the great high priest. When I was in seminary, I had to write a paper about the Qumran community. Most of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were found in the Qumran community. What's interesting is that Qumran community, they taught that there would be three messiahs. There would be a messiah who would be a king, a messiah who would be a priest, and a messiah who would be a prophet. They could not conceive of any one individual fulfilling all three. Jesus does. Jesus is the prophet like Moses described in Deuteronomy 18. He is the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he is the great Davidic king who was to come. Now, here, we're focusing on two. We're focusing on king and priest. Who had Psalm 110.4? Oh, Norm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Norm, before you you go, everyone turn your Bibles to Psalm 110.4. I just want to set the stage. Nice and loud. Okay. Yeah, and hold on one second. Psalm 110, by the way, for everyone, this is the most prolifically quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's cited more often than any other Old Testament passage. Okay? And you'll see why here in a moment. Psalm 110, one, remember, is Yahweh heard, or, or my Adonai spoke to my Yahweh, sit at my right hand, or no, my Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's verse 1. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Melchizedek. So this is the great promise from David, who is king. Okay, and the idea from his prophecy in verse 4 there is that there's going to be one who will come from the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, Malki, is king. Sadek is righteousness. This is the king of righteousness. Okay, where does he come from? Well, Genesis 14. Melchizedek is the one, remember, that blesses Abraham. And what is he king over? He's king over Salem. According to Psalm 76, 2, Salem is Jerusalem. So you have the king of Jerusalem who's also a priest. He's a priest. And who does Jesus come from? Well, he doesn't come from the lineage of Aaron. The argument in the book of Hebrews is that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so he is both the king of Jerusalem, he's the son of man who is the right to rule, but he's also our great high priest. All of that is being depicted here in just these few verses. John is heaping up descriptions of Christ from the Old Testament to show you that he has the right to bring this glorious kingdom, that you can take great confidence that your trust in Messiah has not been misplaced. It's very beautiful indeed. Now, let's go on. Notice this phrase where it says, his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. All of that comes from Daniel 7, 9. What's interesting is that same description was used of God the Father. And so, again, you're being shown the oneness between the Son and the Father as well. Notice also, it says his eyes are like a flame of fire. This has to do with the idea of penetrating judgment. And how fitting that is because the Son of Man is king, but also is priest who can atone and makes constant intercession for us. He's in the presence of the lampstands, his people. And he can see everything that you and I are about. There's nothing that can be hidden. There's nothing that we can do other than trusting upon him and knowing that he is the one who makes constant intercession for us. But he is also the one who speaks then what? To the seven churches and by extension to all of us. It's very beautiful. By the way, this description here is so beautiful. I remember I had a friend who just died recently. Uh, Rick Galarno. And uh, he read this to me. when he had cancer and he said wow (laughs) wow that's what it should do to us this is our great hope the king of kings is coming for us wow my friend right now is seeing him praise God yeah amen Rick was such a funny guy. Every time I'd go over, he'd say, Ah, my brother from another mother. (laughs) Ah, I miss him. But he's with the Lord. So that's the great hope, dear ones. I just remember Rick seeing that, and he says, Wow. (laughs) No more commentary necessary than that. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, now here's the source of the commission. Keeps going here in Christ. Verses 16 through 19, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Notice in his right hand here, he has seven stars. But out of his mouth come this sharp two-edged sword. What's very interesting about that is this is a reference back to Isaiah 11, that one day the Messiah would come, and from the breath of his mouth, remember he spoke everything into existence, Genesis 1.1. He spoke and he created all things, but he also has the power to destroy and to judge by that same mouth. Who had Isaiah 11.4? Jim. But with righteousness he will judge the needy, With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Amen. That's perfect. Notice with the breath of his lips, that which proceeds from his mouth, he will destroy the wicked. What's interesting is that's the very description of what happens to the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. 
Mary Alice, you have that passage there. So how is it that the Antichrist is going to be destroyed by Jesus, the true Christ? Is it through a long, gripping battle where they're duking it out in hand-to-hand combat? You know, in some U, uh, what's the ultimate fighting, UFC cage match? No. It's a very lopsided battle. Listen to what Jesus does. 2 Thessalonians 2.8, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 11.4. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. <sighs> wow, amen. Praise God. So he merely speaks and it's all over. In fact, in Revelation 19.15, remember Jesus is depicted as what? Having this sword that proceeds from his mouth that he slays the wicked with. He does that to the Antichrist and to Antichrist forces as well. Now, what else has he said? Well, it says that he's also like, uh, oh, I'm sorry, here's a description. He says, do not be afraid. It'd It'd be awfully tempted to be afraid of him, would it not? Right? Well, what does Jesus say? He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, here's how I would break that down. Notice where it says, do not be afraid, I am. I would put a semicolon there. Okay, now why? Well, this is a phrase that's used throughout the Gospels. Jesus says, do not be afraid, I am. Uh, Mark 6.50, remember he's walking on the water to his disciples, and the disciples think they're seeing a ghost. But Jesus says to them, as he treads down the waves of the sea, by the way, in the book of Job, that's something only Yahweh can do. Only Yahweh can tread down the waves of the sea. Do you see why it's so egregious when Barack Obama says that the seas will finally recede because of his work? We're the ones we've been waiting for, he says. That's something only Jesus can do. And he says to his disciples, do not be afraid. I am. He's declaring himself to be Yahweh. And then he goes on to heap on top of that the first and the last. That's Isaiah 44, 6. Yahweh calls himself the first and the last. And then he says, and he's the living one, even though he says, I was dead. By the way, the living one is a favorite title of God in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 40, Joshua chapter 3. Yahweh is the living God as opposed to all of the false idols who are only made to live because of the imaginations of those who believe in them and because of the demons that stand behind them. Okay, this is the living one. This is God. Now, notice the last phrase. He says, I was dead, obviously, and behold, I live forevermore. He's the resurrected one. But he says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This idea of the keys of the Messiah and the keys of the kingdom is a very important theme in the book of Revelation. In fact, who has Revelation 3, 7? We're going to come to this. Oh, good. Uh, Pat. Revelation 3, 7. Now, we're going to be coming to this shortly. This, I believe, if I recall, was to the Church of Philadelphia. Um, Go ahead and read this. Great promise. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Okay, now this, this, I want to unpack this a little bit. Here the description in Revelation 3-7 is that Jesus has the key of David. Now, what in the world is that a reference to? Well, if you go back to Isaiah chapter 22, everyone turn your Bibles to Isaiah 22, verses 22 through 25. There was a time in Israel, and particularly Judah, when the people of God were trusting in Assyrian power rather than Yahweh. And there was a faulty ruler named Shebna. And he was so arrogant, he ended up building in pride a tomb for himself. Well, then what God said is he was going to take his right to rule in Judah and give it to a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim is a man in, Davidic, in the Davidic lineage. Okay? Now, let's read about him. Who had the Isaiah eleven twenty? No, Isaiah eleven twenty two through 25. Or 22, 22 through 25. I'm sorry. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder... When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. 
So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue, all the least of vessels, from bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the Lord hanging on it will be cut off. The load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. Thank you. Now, what's all this idea of this peg that's being driven in, but then it gives way? Well, what's being depicted is Judah is shifting all about. They're trusting in Assyria rather than Yahweh. They'll trust in Egypt and Babylon rather than Yahweh. So this Eliakim in the lineage of David is being depicted as driven in like a peg. And he's given the keys of David, the keys to the kingdom. And he determines what's good and what's bad. He has the authority as he rules in Judah. But notice what Noel just ended up reading in verse 25 is that that peg would move. It wouldn't succeed. Even Eliakim would fail. So it necessitated one day this perfect tent peg that would be driven in, that would give complete stability not only for Judah, but for all of God's people. That tent peg is Jesus Christ the Messiah. He's the one who gives complete stability and who will never be moved. And therefore, he is the one who is given the right to the keys of the kingdom of David. He determines who is in and who is out. And so when you have these Jewish people in Asia Minor that are claiming Christians are not true Jews and are kicked out of the synagogue, Jesus says, no, I'm the one who determines who's a true Jew. I'm the one who determines who is in and who is out. He is the tent peg, unlike Eliakim, that would never fail. That's what that's all about. And so that's why he has the wonderful keys to death and Hades. He's the one who has the keys over the Davidic kingdom. Notice here it says that John fell like a dead man. What's the experience of coming into contact with the resurrected Christ? Is it a feeling of intimacy? as Sarah Young would claim in her book, Jesus Calling. No, no, no. Even the apostle fell as a dead man. Now notice here, dear ones, in our culture, we have people that are claiming always intimacy with Jesus, intimacy, intimacy. But the reaction of coming into contact with the resurrected Christ is that you fall like a dead man. One of the reasons why we have people like Sarah Young who's talking about Jesus in almost romantic terms is because we no longer have a distinction between the holy and the profane. Why is that? Because the distinction between holy, that which is separated, that which is different or other, which is God, and the profane, mundane things of this world, that distinction happens under theism, where you have a transcendent God who creates all things. And yes, he's imminent in the sense that he has not left us, but he is not in the creation. But when the church, and I'm speaking of the evangelical church at large in America, trends towards pantheism, now God is in all things, or panentheism. And all of a sudden, no longer can you distinguish between the holy and the profane. And therefore, if you change diapers or whatever you do, it's holy. That's what we've had people argue. These are the people who are claiming to have intimacy with Christ that isn't biblical. Yeah. Hold that thought now. This new movie coming out about the little boy who goes up to heaven. Could you please expand on that same thought with this movie? You know, I don't know what the movie is, but... Well, let me tell you. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Junior goes to the hospital. He doesn't die. He... um, he, he's sick, yeah. and uh, he goes to heaven and crawls up on Jesus' lap, and Jesus helps him with his homework. Oh. This is true. This is in the book. This is, this is yeah. what it is, and millions of these people are buying this. It's flying off the shelf. They're making a movie out of it. It's coming out real soon. Yeah. I think it's called Heaven is Real. Heaven is Real, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that that's coming out again. Dear ones, you and I can trust that heaven is real. Why? Because the scriptures declare it. Now, what's interesting is think about Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed once for man to die, then after that comes judgment. Okay, that's what we're to be convinced of. You and I know that even when the Apostle Paul saw great revelations, he was given a thorn in his side so that he should not boast. 
Why would these great revelations being given to this child when the scriptures are sufficient? We have a once for all handed down to the saints time of the faith. And so here's the point. What I would do is look at something that is being claimed by someone and say it's not necessary, unbiblical. And what's more is they're claiming an intimacy that goes beyond what the scriptures are claiming. So, yeah, yeah, extra biblical revelation. Yeah, Bob. Because I reviewed a lot of books yeah, recently, Ann Voskamp, Sarah Young, so on, these popular books that sell millions of copies. Yeah. I did some research using the Logos Bible software, searching various literal English translations of the Bible. Yeah. The term intimacy does not appear in the Bible anywhere. There you go. Okay. And in their theology, if you want to call it that, intimacy is everything. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, Jesus says just the opposite. Because in John, when he prepares the disciples for the fact that he goes away, yes. he's going to ascend into heaven, that, that they will mourn. Yeah. But he'll send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so we, have, we believe in him whom we haven't seen. Amen. So these over-realized eschatologies offering intimacy are false. Some of them allegorize the Song of Songs. They have different ways of getting about it. This yeah. uh, Kansas City prophets have the bridal paradigm. And they're not willing to walk in faith and long for the return of Christ. Amen. So they create a spirit Jesus with whom they're presently intimate. And I would say, do not listen to these people. They're false teachers. Amen. Forget it. It's not right. It's not from God. Wow. Thank you. So I'm being wishy-washy yeah. here. No, huh? no. <laughs> That's right. So tell us what you really think, Bob. <laughs> Don't beat around the bush. <laughs> so how then would we properly interpret Romans um, 8, 15, and 16 about um, our spirit testifying um, with, with our spirit? Yeah, yeah with his spirit Abba, Father, and that. Yeah. What's the message there then? Yeah, so I, I think that the Holy Spirit is, does what? He is the one who gives us Scripture, right? All Scripture is God-breathed. And so as we read the Scriptures from the Spirit, right? 2 Timothy three fifteen through 17, all Scripture is God-breathed. That reading of Scripture and our interacting, therefore, with the work of the Spirit testifies that you and I can know that we are sons of God. Remember John says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. But notice it's not based on a subjective unction, but on an objective work by the Spirit. And so that's how the Spirit testifies to our spirit that in fact we're sons of the Most High. Okay, so what is the Spirit... Yeah, Abba Father is a term. It's a term of intimacy, but we don't we don't want to go beyond. It's not a just a, a lot of people say it's just daddy. No, there's an, a sense of reverence to it. But the idea is those who are of the flesh of this world, they are enemies of God, and they have no relationship. In fact, when they pray, remember Jesus says, "Don't pray as the heathen do in vain repetition." The heathen and the pagan don't know God, so they think they have to cajole these deities that they don't know through their many words. But you and I, through faith in Jesus Christ, are no longer enemies, objectively, by faith through the Scriptures. And therefore, now you and I can genuinely say, He's my Father. He's looking out for me. I'm with Him. And so that's the idea. So that is a... There's a relationship there, right? Right. But He's still the living God. Right? He's Abba Father to John... But when John sees him raised from the dead, this is the son, Christ, he falls as a dead man. When I'm in the presence of my dad, I give my dad reverence because he's my dad. I mean, I I love him and I respect him, but uh, I don't fall as a dead man. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? We're out of time. Um, Any more questions? We we need to to wrap it up. Yep. I need to make an announcement next week. Good. Next week, things are going to change just for one week. We have to meet right down the hall here in the media center because evidently some important test or something is going to be locked up in this room. Oh. I am not 100% sure how that's going to work. 
But I will be finishing that lecture on how to discern a true work of the Spirit. The, this PowerPoint had 45 slides. We, we've done about two-thirds of them. If you have the printout for that PowerPoint, bring it with you. Because yeah. uh, Christy has a few, but not very many left. So bring the original one. And I will finish the lecture, How to Discern a True Work of the Spirit, in the Media Center down the hall here. Yeah, it ties in very nicely, by the way, with your question, what we're working on. Yeah, so, well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the great promises that you have in your word. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fact that your son is coming bodily again, that he is the one who is worthy to not only open the seals of the scroll, the title deed of the earth, but he is the one who's entitled and worthy of ruling forever in a glorious kingdom in which we will all be raised from the dead. And we thank you for these great promises. I pray, Lord, through this week that my brothers and sisters would remember these promises, that it would enable them to persevere as they look forward to the king and the coming kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.